Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kosima Ali. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhud Khan Marwan and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast with Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. I'm Lydia Okobale and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Good evening friends, I'm Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi all, welcome back to the Bereavement Room podcast. It's the penultimate episode, it's my turn to take the guest seat. It's been wonderful to host a space for communities of the diaspora without censoring and filtering people's truth. To just be present and listen. Lakhani Chowa has returned to the show to host today's episode. Massive thanks to former guest Lakhani for holding the space for me today. Disclaimer notice. I want to reiterate that the perspectives discussed in the Bereavement Room podcast come from our own personal experiences and not that of others. Please remember this when you are listening. These are our own personal experiences. In my conversation with Lekhani, we didn't discuss the investigation into my mum's death. My mum died of cancer in December 2010. 44 mistakes were made by healthcare professionals that came into contact with my mum. I think it's also important to mention here that I learned what it means to push the healthcare boundaries in order to advocate for yourself and be heard following the poor healthcare my mum received. I accept that my mother died of cancer, but I don't accept how she was treated by healthcare professionals. My mother was the glue that kept my family together. Our home was full of life and noise. It was like Piccadilly Circus, very busy and loud. It's been 10 years since she's been gone. I don't think about her in the way that I used to. I went through a major identity loss and I grieved the life I once lived with my family and friends. That life was carefree, a life my parents let me live, a life I could live because my mum was always there no matter what. When I say I grieve for my old life, going out, being a social butterfly may sound a bit selfish, but it's not. She was very much part of that life that allowed me to be in a carefree state. You get to know your parents in different stages of your life. What I mean by that is how I knew my mum as a child was different to the relationship I had with my mum as a teenager and the same as a young young adult. At 26, however, we was just getting into a more open and honest relationship where I pretty much was trusted to do whatever I wanted to do. But then she suddenly got sick and that was all taken away from me. I'll never know what it's like to have a mother beyond 26 in my 30s, 40s and so forth. I'll never get to experience it. I don't think about her anymore, not in the way I used to anyway. Only when she comes to me in my dreams and when I go to her in my prayers. I don't look at photos of my mum. I don't have any photos of me and my mum together. Well, I lie. Actually, there is one photo I took on my Blackberry phone four days before she died. It's a haunting picture and I've buried it somewhere deep so I don't stumble across it again. 
it's not that I don't grieve for her anymore it's just that my grief process is reshaped and I've done a lot of work a lot has happened in the past 10 years where I've had two additional significant losses I've had a lot on it's been a roller coaster the sad fact is I became a better person after my mum died she never got to see that Whereas when she was alive, I was still developing into an, an adult and I wasn't better, I was younger and still growing. It's strange to say I became better after she died. It took her to die for me to make changes in my life and just be a better human. The knowledge and the insight that I gained after her death is one that I wouldn't have gained had she been alive. It was essentially a reality check. And the hilarious thing about it all, well, what hurts the most is it's something she was trying to tell me for several years. Grief and death will change you. You can't see it now, but you will one day. And she was so right. It's so true. So, yeah, I became a better person after she passed away. I live a more authentic life now than I did before. Losing my mum taught me a lot. Former guests suggested it would be a good idea for me to tell my story. So here I am. It's been so real. Thanks for all your love and support. And before we go to the penultimate episode, I would like to read out a heartwarming letter from one of my listeners. Hi, I hope you're well. I just wanted to send you a quick message about your podcast and how grateful I am that you've created this space. I never knew something like this existed and I really connected with it when I started listening. I'm taking a break from listening at the moment just because it can be heavy at times. I'm sure you and your guests know that, but I definitely plan to listen to the rest of it. I think it's really important what you're doing for us to have that space to tell our stories. I really admire you and what you've created and I was kind of nervous to write to you. But yeah, I just wanted to say thank you and I hope you continue to flourish. I pray Allah gives you strength and healing and always keeps you protected. I hope the inevitable bad days are quick and fleeting and that there are lots more good days and moments to balance it out. Sending lots of love. That's a listener and her name is Hamida. Hamida, I apologise if I've mispronounced your name incorrectly. Um... I, I have responded to Hamida's letter. I was very moved by your letter. Thank you for taking the time to write to me. We then continued to respond to one another and she left me with a, a final reflection, which I would like to share with you all. I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I know that doesn't mean much, but when I started listening to your podcast a few months ago now, it was whilst he was still here. And I remember in one episode you talked about going around to eat with him. And then when I realised via social media that he had passed, I honestly felt pain to hear that. And I even feel teary as I write this. But I think now as I write this part of me has put off going back to the podcast. Because I know the you that I'll be listening to isn't the same you from right now. And something about that hurts. I'm not quite sure what, I can't imagine how it must feel, but I heard you talking very lovingly of him and I pray honestly that you find peace. I know it could never fully go away, 
but I hope it becomes easier. I pray Allah blesses your dad with the highest ranks of Jannah. I pray that he grants you ease and strength until the day you get to see him and hold your father again. That was Hamida. Hamida, if you're listening, I'm so sorry if I got your name wrong, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. I am very moved by your letter and I want to thank you for writing in to me. I feel very seen. I feel like you've looked into my soul in terms of how I feel about picking up the podcast. And yeah, you're right. I am not the same person I was. But I hope you do come back to the podcast soon when you're ready. Do take a listen because we did get to the end of the season and I'm still here. And we're at my episode, we're at the penultimate and final episode. The music on Bereavement Room podcast was produced by Kay Solis. The creative and thumbnails were designed by Jay Hussein. I'm your guest, Kulsuma Ali. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Lakani Chirwa and I'm hosting today's episode of the Bereavement Room podcast. Yeah, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, Lakani. Did you think you'd be coming back? Um, I didn't think I would be, no. I thought, you know, in September when we recorded my episode, I thought that would actually just be it. Um, But when I saw that you were looking for someone and it seemed like you were struggling, I was like, well, I could totally manage that and do that like and I think I was very you've taken so much time to like hear other people's stories I think like you know you deserve the same thing back do you know what I mean and I feel like I've also been very yeah sort of intrigued at like what you've been through and why you started Bereavement Room and all the rest of it which I'm sure we'll get into later it's great to have you back and thank you so much for facilitating this episode. No worries. Yeah. Um, thank you to everyone that's been listening so far and been on this journey with us. I think it's so important that, you know, those of us from the global majority get to share our stories of grief. There's not enough of that out there. And yeah, if you've been tuning in, um, yeah, I hope that you continue with it and there is more of this this is just the beginning of the bereavement room podcast absolutely we have a voice it's not that we don't know how to use it we're not empowered to use it in all areas of life so it is really important important for us to be here and to tell our narratives because the grief space you know to put it frankly it's very white if you haven't noticed yeah yeah um but how do, how do you feel about being in the host seat like because for me being in the guest seat is a bit alien and I realize it's so much harder because you have to do the mental gymnastics yeah um I feel like I'm I I'm okay with hosting I think um coming from the background that I come from as a creative performer actor whatever you want to call it um this sort of stuff does fortunately come quite natural to me um but also yeah I guess I'm a little bit I'm a little bit nervous because I've not heard your story before um not that there really is anything to be nervous about but I yeah I just hope I 
do the host job justice I guess you will you will you're brilliant I think when you and I recorded your episode I think we had a moment um and it was over two conversations wasn't it actually it was it was because we really really got into it um you know and I feel like it was very strange because obviously I've technically never met you in person Mm. but I feel so connected to you Um, yeah which is incredible right and um it's just like talking to someone that I've known all my life kind of thing even though I haven't (laughs) but it just feels very like organic um and easy to do for myself anyway but how how are you feeling being in the guest seat it must be you know a bit a bit strange for you uh yeah I am much more comfortable being in the host seat because obviously you've got full control you produce all the episodes you know what's happening you steer the conversation whereas uh, I think being in the guest seat right now it is nerve-wracking because yeah as you said I've never told my story whereas a lot of the other group podcasters they begin with telling their story so I kind of did it the other way around um and it is nervous to sit here because I don't think I've ever told my story from beginning to end uh in in the detail that you know all of us have done previously yeah yeah but I think you know you've got this yeah you you've so got this I think it's important that we hear you know what what you went through um because it's it's important that this conversation is had um yeah so yeah and we need to know where the podcast started as well because I think all those experiences added to why I started the podcast it was what I needed 10 years ago um Mm-hmm. so rundown on the history wow yeah that'd be great to hear so yeah why why did you start the bereavement room podcast All right so let's go back in time a little bit um before bereavement room podcast became br right it was a death cafe bame mm-hmm. so we're going back to 2018 so my younger brother he died of leukemia in january 2018 mm-hmm. and i think Back then, I was in the corporate world. I was working in the corporate world for over a decade um, in various sectors. And then I think after his death, like, it was like a switch. It just sort mm-hmm. of flipped. Yeah. I, I didn't feel the same anymore and about a lot of things. And I, I can't really describe it. It was only until I left that last corporate job that I did and made a career transition. Because as you all know, I work in bereavement now. Um, it was only then that I think Deaf Cafe BAME began. So I was doing bereavement training at a mainstream charity. And I had to talk about my younger brother and, you know, the Muslim experience, right, of death and grief in a room full of white people. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't easy because it was met with quite a lot of judgment. Oh, I uh, only imagine. Yeah, and I and I found that really strange because I was like, aren't we, like, we're British, surely, like, you 
are a little bit aware. I'm not expecting you to have your head in the Quran or anything, but like, surely you know the basics. And I think they were really shocked when I was describing the fact that, you know, as a woman, I was probably the only one at the burial. And I'll I'll get into my brother's story in the next episode, which is the last episode. But it was really okay. important for me to be present there. Mm-hmm. And explaining that to the trainer, she just sort of, it was the questions that she was asking. It was very gender, judgment, sort of tangent she went off on. Right. And I could feel the judgment in the room and they were like, well, why is it like that? Why do Muslims do this? And, well, you know, and I just thought, can I just not be acknowledged in this moment that I'm sharing a personal experience with you without you, like, judging a whole entire religion? That's that's really tough as well because then it almost becomes that you then have to do the educating. Suddenly you have to explain away all the practices of um the muslim faith it's yeah and that did my head in yeah because i'm sitting there having to explain Mm. (laughs) and then obviously in the room there's a very posh lady from ealing and then someone else from essex and they're just looking at me like i'm an alien and i was just thinking oh my gosh this is like 2019 are we really you know is this where we are Mm. so that so the next day i went home and cried because I was on this training for like six months and it was every Monday evening. So straight after work, I would go to this four-hour training. And I just didn't feel like I really belonged there. The training was quite outdated, the way that they spoke about death. Yeah. And I was like, you know something, I'm going to create a death cafe. Mm. Something for for your community. Mm. For all of us, for all of us, because I can't be the only one feeling like this. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting you, like, obviously went through that and experienced that. And there must be so many others that feel the same. Um, Where where do we fit into grief? Why aren't there these conversations around Mm. how our different cultures handle grief and do grief? Because it is different. There's no denying that. Um, yeah, it should be it should be more well known, and it shouldn't be met with that much judgment. So I'm sorry you had to go through that. It sounds really shit. Yeah, it w- was because I couldn't stop crying, and I was like, okay. And then I got angry, and you know we talked about anger in your episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> and for <laughs> for me, anger, right? I'm very productive when I'm angry. I'll get stuff done. Mm. So I created the Deaf Cafe and I was like, right, I'm going to do Deaf Cafe, but it's going to be BAME because whenever I go on Eventbrite or meet up, all the Deaf Cafes are like very English, very old e English. Uh, I can't explain it really. If you go on Eventbrite, you'll see it. And everyone's a lot older, one demographic. There wasn't people from different places or younger people. It wasn't. It wasn't very well represented. So I was like, all right, let me create the BAME Deaf Cafe. Went back to the training, said to the trainer, okay, yeah, so this is what I've been up to all week. I have created a Deaf Cafe BAME. I've got sign-ups. It's on social media. It's done. They were really shocked. They couldn't believe how fast I had moved. Really? Yeah. And they were just, like, staring at me. And then the trainer was like, but surely you can't exclude people from Deaf Cafe BAME. Oh, really? Uh, Can you believe that? That is, I'm, 
I actually have no words. <laughs> this is a joke. That's oh. it. So yeah. how, you know, I, I just, at that moment, it was very chaotic. Look, Harney, I didn't know how to respond, right? Because I, I, I just kind of looked at her and I was like, us excluding? Are you fucking kidding me? It's the other way around, and you need to take that up with the government. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's what's so annoying is suddenly we do our own thing and they get up in arms about it. And it's like, well, no, because by default, everything is there for you on a plate. Mm. Um, So just let us have this. Let us do our own thing. I I can't believe she reacted like that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they really understood me. And, you know, I don't I don't want to talk shit about this charity because they are very well known in the UK. And I think they do do good work and they're very aware that they have a diversity and inclusion problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we need to have that inclusion there. We need to have something that we can relate to and tap into. And I feel like that is... I'm sure we're going to get onto this a lot later when we talk about therapy mm. Um that yeah, there really does need to be a change. And I'm so grateful that you just went that you went out there and set up um the Deaf BM BAME Cafe. I think it's great. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and obviously things have evolved since then because you know I had a full time job and you know trying to do the logistics, hiring of events. Uh, the first few were great, but then I was like, okay, I am a tech person, so mm. what is going to be easier to manage? Because I really want to do this. Mm. So it evolved then, and it became a podcast. So the Death Cafe BAME, although it still exists, I don't actually hold those events anymore. It is basically now the podcast. Right, I see. So and that's how we are, how we got to where we are. And I think that that's great. And it's so important important that we have um, the bereavement room. Um, I'm interested to find out what it is that happens on the bereavement room that you necessarily didn't see in other podcasts. Like, what was it that made you sort of program it the way that you programmed it and and what's important about That's a great question comparison yeah yeah great great question so uh I think episode one I give a little dodgy three minute speech um about why it's so different and why it's so necessary the conversation is so needed when I look at other grief podcasts and I don't again I'm not having a go at the other grief podcasters Mm. but if you look at those platforms whether it's an insta page tips on something another grief podcast right when you look at what they're doing every single person there majority of them are all white people and it feels like yeah. they're and I'm not discounting people's grief because your grief is your own right yeah but no. the narrative of you know putting in one black person one black woman right from London and one Muslim I'm sorry but that doesn't tell the whole grief narrative Absolutely it not no and so a lot of these people I you know I don't know what the challenges are in their industries we all have challenges in our industries whether it's comedy performing arts publishing you know if you are black Asian minority other you will have systemic um racism challenges within your sector so 
So I don't know what happened to those grief um, influencers, but most of the people speaking on their platforms are white people. Now, I'm not anti-white, but what I'm saying is, can you, you know, you've got this massive following and you haven't actually bothered to really be that inclusive by getting the voices of everyone, you know, where it's representative. Mm, Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Like, I, I want to hear stories um, about people who grieve in Africa, mm. people who grieve in India. I want all different varieties mm. um, because it helps us understand what we all go through. Yes, grief is a universal thing, but everyone does experience it diff- differently because of different faiths and cultures and backgrounds. Mm. It's not going to be the same, and mm. that should be representative. Yeah, and if you're living a dual reality like you and I, you know, where our parents are from, you know, your dad was from Malawi, right? Yeah. And your mum's from Cumbria, and my parents are Bangladeshi. Like, there's a whole history there. We don't just grow up with a single British uh, upbringing. Yeah. We, we grow up with religion and other cultural factors uh, that maybe white people aren't aware of. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. They aren't aware of it, but that's not good enough. Mm. They need to be aware. So, yeah, I think that's what makes Bereavement Room so special is that we finally got a space to share our stories. Yeah, I have to say I didn't, you know, it's been a journey doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. It really has. It's been a lot of blood, sweat, tears, not just from me, but even from a lot of the guests as well. Of course. And uh, when, you, especially when you don't meet people face to face all the time, you know, I've only met one or two people, um, and you know, you're doing you, you have to, you know, you have to give people the space, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not meeting them face to face, they're wholly trusting you with a personal account of your story. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really there's a lot of vulnerability in it, um, but that's actually what I think makes it so beautiful is that we are trusting one another to kind of get into it um, whilst also supporting and helping one another. So I remember when I filmed my episode, like obviously I got quite emotional Mm. and straight away you were like, right, let's stop there. Let's pause there and we'll we'll come back another day or we'll get into it a bit later on. But it's like not forcing the trauma to be played out so deeply um which I think is so important and I think it's great that you really held space for that and allowed that yeah and I and I think um a lot of that I have to be thankful for my time at Metanoia which for those of you that don't know which is another reason why I started Bereavement Room um so while I was doing that bereavement training I was also enrolled at Metanoia Institute it's a psychotherapy school and I did my foundation yeah because I was going into a transition from corporate world to wanting to train right mm-hmm. and you have to have a you have to be trained in a certain way of listening holding space making sure that you're not going to harm anyone you know in some ways this podcast was a little bit risky because I absolutely don't want to harm anybody right so you do need to plan the questions that you're going to ask and think about how you're going to empower that voice and you know help 
the person sitting in the guest seat because it can be massively triggering but massive shout outs to metanoia i had a great time there i just think it's very telling as well that last week a lot of people logged into their accounts to start start sharing bereavement room podcasts and all of the stories of the guests you might have missed it because you came off social media but lots of people logged in to start sharing but you didn't share it before and you knew the podcast existed so uh thanks for sharing it it's great we're getting coverage but why now yeah it is interesting that question why now um and I think a lot of it does come from guilt and people are now there's a real sort of I think I'd describe it as a wake-up call for a lot of people right now white people I'm just gonna (laughs) say it um are now realizing how much they don't interact with people that aren't white so I think yeah a lot of guilt's come up and they're trying to sort of make amends or like do more I just hope that it's not a trend yeah because you know things will die down and the real work will continue if people are continuing backing those from the global majority but if you stop then it just shows that it was all performative in the moment so I guess only time will tell in that yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, and I think the performative stuff really upsets me because, mm-hmm. you know, so many of us have come out here, told our stories, and now you're supporting it, so what is it, a tick box? But, yeah, um, as you say, time will tell, and let's not spend too much uh, time getting drained by their actions. They need to go away and reflect on themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've certainly spent some time reflecting as well on on myself and my privilege. So, yeah, that is kind of the background. I hope that gave everyone a good sort of history into why it was started. And we'll talk more about therapy a bit later on because that also comes into it. Yeah, I can yeah. only imagine. No, yeah. I think that was great. Very um, clear and concise and just, yeah, sort of understanding your motivations behind it. Um, so I guess next, I sort of wanted to find out a little bit more about you. Um, so I want to know who you are um, and maybe just a bit of backstory into your upbringing Um because I think that will be important to get a bit more context before we get on to um, remembering your mum. Okay, uh, lovely, uh, lovely question. I love telling people where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so uh, a snapshot into my background. I identify as British Bangladeshi Muslim woman. That's how I identify myself. Um I grew up in Greater London. I still live in Greater London. Uh, For people that want me to be exact, the constituency of Boris Johnson. Um, Gosh. Yeah, if it can get any worse. So, yeah, I live in a very racist area. So you can imagine what it was like in the 70s, 80s and 90s. In comparison to now, it's much more diverse. But when I was growing up, you know, I lived on a council estate for about 33 years of my life. I'm now 36. Um, So that was a large chunk of my life on an estate. And yeah, I don't think I even identify as working class. I would say underclass because... Because, you know, my family was very reliant on, reliant on welfare state. You know, my dad came to the UK in the 50s. 
Mm. He was part of the British Raj. He was like a former subject of the British Raj. He worked in all the factories. And then, you know, that's a really old school generation. They're the people that came here to rebuild the country alongside many others, you know, Africans, Caribbeans, Asians, I think even some Eastern Europeans that came here to rebuild the UK and the infrastructure after the war. And that history is somewhat wiped out. But that's completely. Yeah. And uh, it's really I can't get my head around that. But. Um, I think it's important to mention that on my dad's side. And then my mum joined in the 70s uh, when she married my dad. She she moved to the UK in the 70s because my, my dad came here in the UK before Bangladesh was Bangladesh. I think it was East Pakistan or East Bengal or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So there's um, a lot of history and things that happened during that time with the British being over in India and them dividing everybody up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my mum then joined later on in the 70s and that's kind of pretty much my background. Okay. Yeah. Um, first off, I cannot believe you're 36. Okay. Like, <laughs> I did not know that. So, yeah, I'm like, whoa, okay. Um, I'm old. No, but like you do not look it. Like you look so much younger than what you are. So I'm like, that's come as a big shock to me. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important that we understand, yeah, where you're from, what happened with your parents coming to this country, um, because that will that will shape the rest of the episode. And you know, we need to talk about um, colonization. Yeah. <laughs> there we're not going to sweep it under the rug um no. and we can say it and you know if people are sort of listening going oh what does what does all that mean I don't know anything that's happened um just do your googles and you can learn <laughs> um yeah information is a click away yeah it really is there's so much there um but yeah thanks for telling me a bit more about yourself um so I guess now um, I think we'll get on to talking about your mum who sadly passed away in 2010. 10 years. That's Yeah, 10 years, a very, very long time. Um, and as we know, the grief never ends. Um, but yeah, if you could, in your own words, tell me um, what happened, um, whether that's giving a bit of backstory before her death um but yeah please feel free all right so yeah um my mum died in December 2010 and for context I guess I should explain who I was when my mum was alive right right so who I was in my 20s is very different to who I am now Mm -hmm. and I guess my story is very much to do with identity loss so In my 20s, I was the life and soul of the party, right? I was the instigator of parties. I was very loud and very confident for someone in her 20s. Because when I look at people in their 20s now, I think, you know, this was pre-social media 2010. It was the year of the BlackBerry phone. Yeah. Um, There was really no social media apart from Facebook. So, you know, we went to clubs. We went out and met people face to face. There wasn't really any... Well, there were internet internet dating sites, but there weren't all this Tinder and 
you know bumbles and whatever right yeah. <laughs> so, so you actually had to go and talk to people you got you know I used to love going clubbing I used to have an entourage of friends like I being can relate <laughs> groups of fucking people right and I just wasn't introverted at all I was I was just someone that loved life I was very carefree and I, yeah. I and I guess you could say, I'd go as far as to say, maybe I was a little bit obnoxious at times. Um, you could quite frequently see me bunking off work as early as I could on a Friday so I could find the tightest dress in Topshop in Oxford Circus. You know, that massive Topshop in, on Oxford yeah, Street. Yeah, I used to shop there all the time as well. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was always in there on the bottom floor looking for the tightest dress that I could wear to the club five hours later, right? Yeah. So, like, my priorities and who I was in my 20s was completely different to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my and my friendship circles as well. You would not see me with one other person, right? You would see me with ten other people. Okay. Yeah, and I I was just very extroverted, and I love life. So I think who I am now is very different to before. Of course. So that year in May, I went traveling to Mexico. I decided to take a solo trip because. You know, all of my friends, they're all settling down, getting boyfriends and stuff like that. Whereas I was still on my travel thing. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's you know, I'd, I'd gone traveling. And prior to that, you know, if I wanted to go on holiday, I would never tell my parents, oh, I want to go to Barcelona. I'd have to tell them that I've gone to Bristol, right? Because there's no way they're going to let me out of the fucking country. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think that year was the year that things were getting a bit better and they were starting to trust me more and realise that I'm not a liability and that I do come back home safe and that, you know, even though I do go out to parties until 6am and back chat them, they were starting to trust me a little bit more. So I said to my mum, because I can't lie to them, I can't go all the way to Mexico and be like, I'm in Manchester. That's that's, that's not going to work. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So I was like, okay, look, I really want to do this trip. All my friends are settling down. They're getting married. None of them are really interested in going on girls' trips anymore. Most of them just want to go on their romantic holidays with their boyfriends. Fair enough. But I just wasn't on that because for me, I was 25, 26. I just wanted to enjoy my life. Mm-hmm. And I said to my mum, can I go? And she was like, yeah, of course. Like, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Just make sure you got your wits about you. And my parents are starting to relax at this point in their okay. life. They're starting can to I relax. Expect, so were you living at home with yeah. them? Yeah, I was right. living at home wow. with them. Okay. And, I, and I was always lying that Carney because I'd be wearing the shortest on the most, you know, revealing outfit. But I'd go to my best mate's house and get dressed. Ah, I see. That's how you got away with it. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, and I just used to make up so much shit. And then I had a friend from school who I didn't see as much, but because she's Bengali as well, because she had issues with her parents trying to get go out and about as well. She'd use me as an excuse because our families knew each other. Okay. She'd be like, oh, I'm at Colsimans, but she'd probably be somewhere else. Right. Um, And they'd be like, that's fine. And then I'd use her as well. And it was it was a lot of that. And I think South Asians that are listening, they'll probably resonate with mm. what I'm maybe saying. Um, I don't know if it's like that in other black communities as well. 
but like for for me you know my my experience is that my parents are very protective and very strict and there is no way that I could leave the house in like the shortest dress yeah but when you get to 26 it's time to stop lying so yeah. okay <laughs> yeah so I started to be more honest and I would just wear whatever I'm wearing and if they didn't like it I'd be like fine sod off so like mm. I just yeah I remember my mum being really open and peaceful about it and she's like well that's what you want to do if you want to go to Mexico and you want to travel by yourself fine but just look after yourself stay in touch mm. and I remember saying to her you know I'm going to go to a, the place where they make silver because there's like a famous place there where they make silver right because I didn't go to Cancun or Playa del Carmen I actually did a proper real off the beaten track trip oh, there. I love that I love that yeah that's the way yeah, because you like traveling, right? I yeah. love traveling. Yeah. So you like get listening it. to yeah. talking about Mexico now, I'm just like, I want to go to Mexico. Yeah. I want to plan a trip there. Yeah. Um, yeah, traveling can be very freeing. Um, and yeah, I really like to go traveling to get a real sense of the culture. Um, yeah. Um, so how was that trip? Oh my god, it's brilliant. So I went by myself and I had an amazing time. But it was the year that the Icelandic volcano thing erupted and all the airlines stopped. I don't know if you remember that. Oh. Uh, there was lots of smoke up in the in the sky. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. do it, yeah. So my flight didn't leave for about 10, 15 hours later and I was on a BA flight at that point just at Heathrow sat down and by the time I got to Mexico City it was like 1am and I was shitting myself because you know there's a difference between daytime arrival and nighttime arrival in a country that you don't know anything about so Mm. (laughs) um, I was just like okay because I'd missed my transfer and I had to work out how you know how that was all going to come together at 1am without getting ripped off or whatever so because you do have to be careful as a solo traveler right yeah absolutely you really have to be switched on Mm. you have to kind of be on high alert just so you can preempt any sort of anything dodgy or bad happening um you become very self-aware yeah as a woman and I think as well if you're a woman traveler um yeah you're exactly right being self-aware it heightens your awareness but yeah I had a wonderful time on this trip um you know I went everywhere to Acapulco to the Guerrero State and I you know I just I traveled everywhere it was amazing and I had a great time uh and it was my first trip alone uh and it taught me a lot I learned a lot about myself um but then I came back to chaos right so I think it was a few days after I came back you know my mom was happy to see me exchanging stories I gave her her silver that I brought so I'm like jewelry um and it was a couple of days after that the it was one evening in June that my bedroom door wasn't quite closed it was slightly ajar Mm-hmm. and I could just hear vomiting and I was like oh what's going on and then I I go out and I see that my mum is vomiting in the bathroom sink mm-hmm. and I've never seen my mum vomit in my entire life yeah I've never seen her look like that before mm-hmm. so you must have been really concerned and quite yeah. shocked by it I can imagine yeah because you know me and my mum have a tough love relationship 
it wasn't a very emotional relationship. It was tough love. Okay. Um, we're not, we weren't huggy or whatever. And, um, the relationship I had with my dad was more emotional. Whereas with my mum, it was very much tough love. So I was really concerned in that moment because he naturally would be. And I was like, okay, I need to help her. So I was rubbing her back, just holding her hair back while she was vomiting. And I just remember feeling really uneasy that evening. Mm. And then she just sort of didn't say anything, went back to her bedroom. And I was like, is there anything I can do? Do you want paracetamol? Do you want water? Like, I'm trying to be emotional with my mum. And that's, you know, that's just not something that was normal for us. Right. And she was like, no, just close the door. And I was like, well, who's going to clean the vomit from the sink? <laughs> and I just got into a moment of like being a bit like oh god now I have to go and clean up the bathroom kind of thing yeah you're probably quite frustrated about it <laughs> yeah so I was just like my empathy there kind of just wavered a little bit I suppose because she wasn't giving yeah. me anything in that moment of course uh, and then I went back I cleaned the bathroom but I felt really uneasy looking back now and I reflect I remember how uneasy and it's it was 10 years ago, look, Connie. There's only certain things that I remember. Yeah. And, and other things that I don't. So that really sticks in my mind. And I think that was the okay. beginning of absolute fucking pandemonium in my house. Right. Um, yeah. After that, it was, you know, I can't be too specific. All I can remember, it was countless GP visits, A&E visits, and being sent home with painkillers. My mum would just complain about pain in her stomach. She'd stopped eating. She stopped cooking. She stopped functioning daily, uh, essentially. But they just kept saying, well, you're type 2 diabetic. So it might be that your sugars aren't controlled. And then the GP, our family GP, turned up one day, went up to my mum's bedroom. And he was like, well, what did you eat this morning? And she was like, well, I had an orange. And he goes, well, that's acidic. And that's why you got a stomachache. Mm-mm. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And there were many visits like that where the GP would visit at home. Uh, we would go to A&E and they'd just give paracetamol or they would send for not the full blood count because, you know, you can get different types of blood tests. For all the listeners that yeah. don't know, when you get your health checked, always ask for the full blood count, not the basics because there's the basic test and then there's everything. Yeah. And the GP, he just went for basic ones. He didn't send her for full scans and there was just a lot of that so that's you know my mum died in December she got diagnosed in November which was a six-week mm. diagnosis so she was literally crying out in pain from yeah. June to November mm. cradling her stomach wow. now I the only other event that I remember after the countless GP and A&E visits right is that as a family we were a bit ignorant I think about advocacy because you have to speak medical language and you have to understand the National Health Service and I think as a family we really relied on medics being the gospel everything so what they say goes Mm -hmm. but sometimes you need to challenge that right 
Yeah, you do. And you do need to challenge that. And you know your body better than anyone else. Just recently mm-hmm. speaking to Kerry, who came on the podcast, she's from Baltimore, she was talking about advocacy. It really hit home as she was talking about that, because it just took me back to my mum's, you know, my own story. Yeah. Um, it You have to advocate for your bodies. These medics, right, they spend seven years in medical school. It doesn't mean that they know your body. You know your body. It's true, yeah. Yeah, and you and as BAME, right? And I hate using the term BAME because they do put us all in one group and we're all different. But especially if you're from the black community, you have to exaggerate one thousand amplified percentage when you're at the GP surgery in order to be heard. Mm. And it's the same for Asians as well. Otherwise they're just gonna send you for the basics, right? Um, yeah. And you need to speak their language and you need to advocate for your lo- loved ones and for yourself. And I think we didn't know that at the time. Right. If, if the doctor said there's nothing wrong with you and they send you home with painkillers as a family, we believed that. Right, of course, yeah. So the only other thing that I really remember is I worked at a publishing company in Shad Thames at the time and it's a very white publishing company. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, a very Islamophobic publishing company, very racist place to work because generally the publishing oh, industry oh. is. But at the time, you know, you're early on in your career, you've come out of uni, you're just doing your best to like get to places, get promotions, earn the salary, especially when you're a minority, trying to get heard, right? So I worked in a publishing company at the time. Now, I one morning you know this is the millionth time my mum's crying out in pain mm. and I, I just remember going to the kitchen to take my yogurt out and she was sitting there crying out in pain holding her stomach oh. leaning back on the radio and she goes oh you're gonna leave me you're going to work and oh my god look honey like that guilt I think plagued me for like nine years Be- I can only imagine because I just sat there and I said to my mum, I was like, but the doctor said there's nothing wrong. You probably just need to go outside. It's, you know, they said it was the diabetes. Like, there's there's nothing wrong. But my mum was literally crying. And I just didn't know what to do. And, you know, I was going to be late for work. My manager was a bit of a cunt. So I was like, okay, I need to get to the other side of London Bridge right now. And mm. I literally walked out. And then my dad started banging on the window. And I was like, what? What's going on? And he was like, I need you to come back inside. I want to talk to you. So I came back inside and goes, can you give us a lift to A&E? Because I don't think I can sit here and watch this anymore. Mm-hmm. We just we just need to go back to A&E again and see what they say. And I was like, yeah. we've been to A&E about a million times. Like, how many more times are we going to go to A&E? And I was getting a bit frustrated at this point. Yeah. But then I was like, okay, right, let me give a lift. Let me give them a lift. So I gave them a lift to A&E. And I'm a little bit frustrated because I'm worried about work. Because my manager wasn't a very nice person. And if I was one minute late, she'd try and give me a disciplinary, right? Okay. So I was just like, okay, I'm frustrated about work. My mum's crying out in pain. And I don't know what was wrong with me in that time. My priority should have been just my mum. Fuck work, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes, sometimes our priorities can be a bit mixed up. Yeah, they were. They're my priorities in my 20s are very fucking mixed up. And I've learned my lessons since then. And I've hated myself as well. But, you know, 
I, I dropped them off at A&E and I said, do you want me to come? Do you want me to come? I can just take a sick day. It's okay. I'll just call in sick. And my dad was like, no, I don't want you to lose your job. You know, it's hard enough as it is. I've got this. But then as I was driving away, I stopped the car and I pulled the window down. And I shouted at my dad and I said, are you sure? Because the guilt was just setting in because I was yeah. driving away and I'd left them at A&E. Mm-hmm. And my dad was very adamant. He was like, no, 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 no. You've done enough. You've dropped us off. I'll sort it. Okay. So I drove back. I parked the car up, walked 15 minutes to the train station, ran into my best friend because she's home for the weekend visiting her mum. And she's like, oh, what are you doing here? It's like 11 a.m. Shouldn't you be at work? And I was like, oh, my mum's not been well. I think she's got, you know, I hope it's just the flu. So we have a bit of small talk. I go off to work. I'm only at my desk for maybe 50 minutes, an hour, mm. before I get a phone call. Okay. And I get a phone call, and my sister's crying on the phone. Okay. And I was like, well, what's happened in the space of an, me dropping them off at A&E and now? Mm. So she's like, I'm going to explain everything when you get on the train, but, it, you know, they're keeping her in. The consultant reckons, you know, there's a locum consultant there that shouldn't have been on shift that was there that happened to see mum. They reckon that she's dying. That This is all that my sister says on the phone. And I'm in an open plan oh, office. Yeah. yeah, I'm in an open plan office surrounded by all my colleagues. And it's dead quiet in this office. So everyone can hear your conversation. Mm. And my manager, I can see she's watching me from the corner of my eye because she sort of knew that my mum had been ill and we didn't know what was going on. Um, so she's like, you need to just leave. Like, you need to get out of that office and come home. Yeah. And then I turn it over and I sort of politely say to my manager, oh, look, my mum isn't well. And, you know, I dropped her off at A&E. Something's happened and I really have to go home. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Just make sure you check out with HR on the way out. Mm. So I go to the HR manager and I have to explain that my mum's ill. And at this point, I'm crying yeah, you're probably really scared. I can't fucking believe it. Because as far as I'm concerned, my mum's got the flu. She's just got a stomachache, right? This yeah. isn't, she's not dying. So I'm literally crying at the HR's desk. And then she's like, right, you can go in a minute. Let me just fill out my forms. You need to fill out the forms to check out. I just thought, for fuck's sakes, like, fuck these formalities. Yeah. Like, I have to go so I'm like sitting there at the desk crying they eventually let me go mm. now if you know the London Bridge and Bermondsey area well and I just remember my walk now what is that the name of that road it's a long road I think it's the Jamaica Road Jamaica or something road, yeah. so I work near there I work in between Bermondsey and London Bridge so I know it well but only recently I know it well so I won't have known it back then but yeah Jamaica yes. Road. You know what I'm talking about, yes. Mm. So I used to walk down that road every day to get to work. And I'm walking down this road and I need to cancel my appointments the next day. And I see that I have an appointment at the dentist. Now, I don't know how everyone else's dentists work, but mine is if you don't give enough notice, you get fined. Mm. And I'm very poor at this time. I can't afford a fine. So I'm trying to cancel all my appointments as I walk towards Bermondsey Station. And the rece receptionist is like, I was like, look, I've got a family issue. I'm not going to be able to come to the, my regular appointment tomorrow. So she starts having a go at me on the telephone. Mm -mm. 
she's like no that's not on this is short notice we're gonna have to fine you 58 pounds you know it's not good enough da, 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 da. and oh my god at this wow. point I lost my shit. All you could see is a little brown girl walking down the Jamaica Road. It's quite busy now because it's midday, right? The bus stops are busy. There's groups of people. Literally, I started effing and jeffing and calling her a cunt. I was like, oh, you think if I knew that my mum was dying sooner, that I would have cancelled the appointment sooner? You fucking da-da-da. Like, I literally just lost my shit at the Rottweiler receptionist. And I just got silence at the other end of the phone. She was just like, oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. That's okay, no problem. We've cancelled your appointment. Okay, so it worked. (laughs) The thing is, like, I've told you I've got a family issue. For God's sakes, mm-hmm. why are you got to be an arsehole about it? I just needed to cancel the appointment. Uh, and at this point, people can see me shouting. The bus stops, the groups are dispersing. Everyone's just letting me walk through. Like, my awareness was so heightened at that mm-hmm. point. I could see people just trying to get away from me because I looked like a crazy person that was about to yeah. kill somebody. Mm. Wow. And then I get held up at Bermondsey Station by the police. So I was just like, okay, fine. So they're checking my bags, da, 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 checking if I'm carrying a knife or whatever. And then I finally get through Bermondsey Station and I go to Paddington. I board my train and I call my sister. Mm-hmm. The train is rammed at this point. Yeah. So it's very busy and I'm chatting to my sister and she's like yep he reckons that mum's got cancer she's got lesions all over her body they can't understand why it got missed off and why she's been sent home with painkillers they're keeping it overnight and uh, and she's literally divulging all this information to me wow and I'm just crying like a bitch on you honestly me as a crier I'm not a I'm an ugly crier. Like, I was just wailing on the train. Everyone could hear me, and these trains are silent. Yeah. I'm not surprised, though. Like, you would. You would just let it out. You wouldn't be able to hold it together just for the sake of the people on the train. Like, yeah. I And I just, you know, and I'm hearing what my sister's saying, and not one single person even said, are you okay? Do you want a tissue? Or whatever. And like, I don't even, even care, but like that was something that I noticed and reflected on after. And I was like, wow, people are such bastards. They can hear my conversation. They know my mum's dying. I find that <laughs> absolutely mad. Whenever I see anyone crying on public transport, I'm always like, here's a tissue. Do you need to talk about it? If not, fine, I'll leave you. But like, because I've been that person crying on a train, mm. I can't not acknowledge it. I can't it just... It's so awful to just ignore that and not, you know, sort of just be like, are you all right? Is there anything I can do? <sighs> yeah. Ridiculous. Well there, well, there was none of that. And I think it's great that you do that. And I think actually more of us need to do that when we see someone yeah. in public crying. Be- Absolutely. Because, because all you're going to say is, no, go away. I don't need your help, right? Exactly. But being acknowledged makes you go, oh, okay, I'm not completely invisible. Mm, and and just a simple gesture of a tissue can like mean the world to someone when they're really going through it yeah especially from a stranger you know there's a saying you smile at a stranger it's a nice thing to do yeah definitely (sighs) and everyone can hear my wails so I walk home 
50 minute 15 minute walk um i think what i remember after is my sister turning up with her suitcases because my sister doesn't live with us she's married she's got her kids she lives somewhere else she she turns up with her bloody suitcases so i'm like oh my god this is serious like this is really serious it's starting to dawn on me and she goes right here I am, these are my suitcases, I'm moving in. I haven't lived with my sister in years. So I'm just kind of like, oh my God. So she brings her, she's got two, you know, I've got nephews. So she brings her two boys with her. They're in primary school at the time. Mm. And, you know, it's a bit of a blur. But my mum, the nature of it is that my mum was in hospital for two weeks, just faffing with consultants that you can only see on a Monday. Okay before the results come and they weren't going to treat her and at this point you know my I've got two older sisters my older sister is she's like the negotiator head of the family PR person you don't mess with her you know she's got the voice of reason um my middle sister is more like she's like the social worker does all the caring she does her hands-on caring and then me I'm like the youngest they try and protect me from stuff but my voice doesn't necessarily always get heard so my older sister's getting annoyed at this point with the ward manager. And she's like, well, if you're not going to treat her, why is she still here? You may as well just send her home to die. Like, you're not going to give her any treatment. And, yeah. and those two weeks were really hard because I literally moved into the hospital. Mm. I'd go to work. We put a bed in and me and my sister lived in the hospital. We took it in turns to nurse my mum while she was in the hospital because you can't. Look, nurses are there, but they're there to do a job and they're not emotionally invested like your family will be. Yeah. So, you know, we did all the caring, you know, washing, bathing with my mum and she didn't sleep very well. And I remember she said the junior doctors keep prodding me. They keep coming at 3 a.m. and that's when I'm sleeping. They keep taking my blood. And... I just, you know, I just recall that moment when there were like five junior doctors just staring at my mum. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? You're not going to treat her. So why are we still here? Just send us home. But they wouldn't send us home. That sounds uh, stressful. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, my nephews were now in the hospital as well, because if their mum is in the hospital, who's helping them do their homework? So their dad's trying to do their best. He's also got a job to run. So like, you know business to run so it was I'm sitting there with my nephews helping them do their homework in the hospital and it was a really big transition like we were all living in the hospital and doing our stuff in the hospital yeah I bet and I you know I felt my older sister had the conversation with my mum because she had low grasp of English um Mm. she had the conversation about the fact that they weren't going to treat her and my mum was only like 60 something so Mm. My sister said she can't get that image out of her head the moment that she explained properly to my mum that the consultants aren't going to do anything for her. Yeah. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah, like delivering that. Imagine you got cancer and you want to live and the the consultants are like, there's nothing we're going to do for you. Yeah. Too late. So I wasn't there to witness that conversation, but my older sister was, and there were a lot of tears. I bet. And eventually my sister pushed the ward manager to discharge my mum. But, you know, he was like, we need to see your mum up and about. 
So I was pushing my mum up and down in the wheelchair. But I was thinking, what's the point? She's dying. So why did you... Like, it didn't... It didn't yeah. The whole process yeah. didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand the ward manager. My sister was very pissed off at this point. She mm. just wanted my mum home. Then eventually she pushed them to get a discharge because they were saying, look, she might live for six months. So I... They sent my mum home. They sent her home without the morphine, which was interesting. Mm. So I was like, how can you forget to give us the morphine? Like, what's wrong the with you? The one thing that's going to help yeah. her. Yeah. Oh. So my sister's like, these fucking medics, right? She was just so pissed off at this point. And then they sent a Macmillan nurse round. And the Macmillan nurse was like, well, you look so united as a family. You know, I'm here if you want me, but it doesn't look like you need me. Mm-mm. Now that's another issue, right? Because I think there's a lot of stereotype with um, Afro-Caribbean, um, you know, for the Black community, South Asian community, about care that your family will do it, or that you don't yeah. need services to rely on, mm-hmm. and they stereotype. Um, so I. <sighs> We didn't want the Macmillan nurse anyway because at this point we were pissed off with health services and as nice as she was we were like it's fine we'll do it all yeah we're gonna care for our mum we're gonna nurse her until she dies so it's so interesting what you say about the assumption that they look at it and they go well there's a lot of you here and you seem like you want to do it so we'll just leave you to it but it's like well no actually maybe we actually need the professional there to do it um if if that's what we want like I know obviously you said you didn't want her but yeah it's so interesting that the assumption is like oh they'll just deal with it but it's like why why is that very interesting they're just stereotyping us I think and what it is is they don't understand what our needs are and a lot of care services aren't already geared to the needs of various communities so you have to tailor it because You know, I worked very hard to get, you know, me and my sister worked hard to get a good care package for my dad later in life. But they had to really tailor that to his needs. And I think it's an ignorance of the the services that are available don't understand what the family's needs are. But it's not helpful to turn around and say, well, there's so many of you here and we've all got jobs. We've got lives. We've got kids. We will need some respite. Yeah, absolutely. You need Mm. a huge respite. You need to be able to process the fact that you know, your loved one is essentially about to die. It's it's such a traumatic experience. And I guess it's just this assumption of like, oh, well, they'll deal with the trauma. Like, I'm tired of it. Yeah, very tired. You, That's a great word. Because at this point, even though we said no to the Macmillan nurse, my sister was just pissed off with them at this point mm, with, yeah. with health services. And she was like, just yeah. forget it. Just forget it. Um, and you know, when a GP says that you got, when you're dying of cancer, but he says you got stomachache because you ate an orange this morning, everything, it was just traumatic. I can't even tell you because we were not expecting. Yeah, I bet. We we were not expecting this. So my dad, my, sorry, my mum didn't die within six months. My mum died within five days after she was discharged. Oh gosh. Um... And we nursed her, and me and my sisters, you know, the bed was downstairs, we put in another bed, me and my sister shared a bed, my nephews were all there, we prayed together, um, anything my mum wanted she could have, but you know, 
she had cancer, but it wasn't obvious, I guess, because she was still speaking, functioning. She was still able to get up. That was the strangest thing. We would help her, like, with washing her and taking her to the toilet and uh, with the medication and feeding her. But she was not in and out of consciousness. The last four days, the way everything planned out was a bit too perfect. It was like a good death is how I would describe it, (laughs) if you you can even say that. I mean, yeah, it's um, it's a weird one, but... I'm glad that she was as comfortable as she could be and you guys were able to do that for her. Mm, Because she wasn't in the hospital bed and she was in her own bed. So, Mm. and that's what she really wanted. She hated the hospital bed. So me and my sister took the hospital bed and we put her in, we brought her own bed downstairs. Yeah. And um, we prayed together and we were there and we cried together. And, you know, there were a lot of phone calls and her sister's calling her and, you know, at this point, she's got the death rattle. And I don't know if people are familiar with the death rattle. I've heard of it myself. Um, never experienced it, though. But I know it's something that is spoken about on other podcasts. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, for the listeners, if you can explain it, yeah, um, it'll just give a bit more context and understanding. Yeah. So I think my own experience and what I know of the death rattle is that it's the the very he- heavy breathing before someone dies. Mm. It's a bre- it's breathing like no other. It's not just heavy breathing. It's like a rattle. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I don't know how else to explain it, but my mum had, you know, she had this very heavy breathing it, and the way that she was sort of speaking as well, the sound of her voice. Yeah. And... Yeah, um, you know, we prayed together and she loved her grandchildren. She lived for her grandchildren. You know, they were devastated. And yeah, I mean, what happened was that she went to sleep. But the death death rattle at this point disappeared. She suddenly went into a quiet, normal breathing space. Okay. After three days of that. And you know it was 2 a.m and it's hard to sleep when you can hear a death rattle so I was like oh her death rattle is quietened down like her breathing is quietened down and she'd just fallen asleep like a baby really and so we didn't want to disturb her so me and my sister next to her in the other bed but then I suddenly don't hear anything Mm. and then I went, went over and I could see that her body had cooled down and she'd gone yeah so my my sister was like yeah has she gone as well because my sister had just woken up at that point it was like three or four a.m and I was like yeah she's gone oh you know and I think that's what woke me up the the deafening silence yeah when you've been hearing this sort of death rattle rattle or the the breathing and then it stops yeah and it, it was that silence that kind of because you're sleep in those times you're sleeping but you're not really sleeping if that makes sense yeah you're probably not in a deep sleep yeah so me and my sister aren't in a deep sleep and we're just there if she needs anything or she falls into any breathing difficulty or something happens but she literally just fell asleep like a baby and that was it and I was like I just wake up I went over to her and yeah she her body was warm but you could obviously tell it was cooling down and she'd gone yeah and then oh my god people just arriving at that point and then you know the doctor that needs to announce it 
the mm. person has died and obviously it's 4am in the morning on a Friday or a Saturday I think um, my older sister calls that uncle doctor they yeah. pronounce that yes she is dead the my older sister comes to do her negotiate because she's like the negotiator right I don't know how else to describe her um, she's like the Don Colleone of the family mm-hmm. um, she comes in and does her thing and she's not very emotional because it's all business it's all business and she's trying to logistically get the undertakers there and family letting everyone know and my dad's just devastated because he comes down at this point because he was sleeping upstairs and you know he had a night downstairs as well where he slept downstairs we all took it in turns because we can't all sleep downstairs there's only two beds yeah then you know my dad comes down and I don't never really see my dad crying generally you wouldn't see men crying but he starts to cry and then he he stifles his sob yeah and then he tries to stop himself and then the family GP arrives this family GP arrives and he's just got his head down. And, you know, my dad is someone that's very, very polite. He'll shake everyone's hand. doesn't matter who you are or whatever, right? He's just very welcoming. He'll shake your hand. We've had this family GP for years and the GP tried to shake my dad's hand. And there's my mum's dead body in the bed in the dining room. Mm. And my dad just turned away. Right, wow. Turned his face and he didn't shake his hand. And my dad is someone that would never do that because that's really impolite. That's yeah. not something that you do in that generation, right? Yeah. He just literally turned his head and didn't shake his hand. Right. And it was awkward because there were so many people in the room there and he's there giving his condolences. But you really fucked up, mate, because my mum mm. went to the GP. She went to see you several fucking times, and you didn't send her for the correct test, and you kept saying that she had a stomachache because she ate a fucking orange. So yeah. I, you know, and I didn't witness that that happen, but my older sister explained it, and she was like, oh, my God, it was so awkward. He turned up, and, like, he tried to talk to Dad, and Dad just turned away from him, and it was, like, an awkward silence. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I, what do I remember about the rest of that day? I guess that, um, you know, people turned up, the community turned up, everyone was praying, mm-hmm. the phone kept ringing, and with South Asians, you know, that's just how it is. Like, everyone just rocks up to support you and give mm-hmm. food and be there with you. And, yeah, um, it's all a bit of a blur. I mean, I remember my trip to... East London Mosque, because that's where my mum's funeral happened. Ah, uh, yeah. So I think it's um, really important that you talk about um, the process of uh, the funeral, the burial, um, and the rituals from um, your faith. Yeah. So as a Muslim, um, we have something called the Janaza, which is the funeral call to prayer. It's very spiritual. And everyone comes to pray for the soul that has departed this earth. Yeah. And we chose, even though we live in Greater West London, right, we chose East London Mosque because as a Bangladeshi, majority of our family are from East London. I don't want to stereotype Bengalis here, but a lot of us are from East London, okay? Let's just admit yeah. it. Yeah, because of history. So my extended family are all from East London. So Mm -hmm. it made sense to have her funeral in East London because no one's coming out to the sticks, which is essentially how they describe us, the sticks. Right, I see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a bit smaller community here because it's very white here and there's not, you know, there's not much community here. So um, 
the janaza happened we were there as there with my sister we prayed but obviously we have to wash the body because that's the last thing that you do and the family members do that so they took my mum's body like out of the fridge mm. and you know they give you like a sponge it's like a full-on shower and I've never experienced that before washing a dead person's body yeah prepping them so that was quite emotional I can only imagine wow and yeah I didn't really like for me it was like we need to get the job done that's how I dealt with it <laughs> right yeah just... and I, I mean, yeah often it is like that isn't it when you're in the moment and these things are happening you just kind of go ahead and do what what's expected and it is just a blur and before you know it you're doing things that you never thought you would ever do but it's just part of it um it's really interesting how we just become attuned to doing those things mm. um but yeah absolutely yeah yeah because yeah. I just as you say I just you know in a moment of crisis and sadness and you know trauma and deep shock it was like get the job done whereas my older sister she was doing the job but then she took me to the side because I can't connect that's not my mum that's just a dead body I can't connect with that right interesting yeah so she was just very far removed I'm, okay yeah um but my older sister didn't connect at all and for me it was just getting the job done but you know prior to them taking my mum's body away from the house mm. I should say that you know my sister fainted when they put okay. her body in the back of the van and it was just all very you know I everyone's grief is different like we process differently me and my sisters are like chalk and cheese none of us are the same so she'd fainted and she just can't she just couldn't deal with it I guess she had more of an emotional relationship with my mum yeah. and seeing my mum's body go in the back of some black van and being carted off to a fridge like you know, she fainted on the street, and then my brother was just like, oh, you guys need to keep it together, and then I vomited, oh, and, he, and he just had enough, and you know, men can't deal with all these emotions, I'm sorry to say it, but you guys need to be more emotional, like, if you're listening, yeah, if there's any men. There definitely seems like more empathy is needed during these moments, like, it's really horrific what's happening, and, you know, everyone is going to respond differently, and that almost, I feel like, needs to be respected. Mm, mm. And I think my brother just didn't know how to deal with it because he's got one sister on the bloody floor and then the other one vomiting. So he was just like, okay, well, I can't deal with you lot. You guys need to get... Like, we've got stuff to do. We have to logistically get everything to, together and inform yeah. our families. So, you know, the we had a beautiful janazah and so many people came out. And obviously, you know, East London Mosque is a public space everyone can go in and when there's a funeral people will come and pray for you which is good because yeah. praying for the departed soul is a good thing and yeah I just yeah we were there and I saw my cousin some people that I hadn't seen for years and yeah that's it funerals do really bring the whole family together um and it's a weird one isn't it because when yeah. they do there's people I, I hadn't seen in like decades or since I was a child yeah so you almost don't even remember them but then suddenly they're there and they remember you and you're going 
I ain't got a fucking clue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was literally sitting there on the namaz mat, you know, the prayer mat, and mm. this lady comes up to me, and um, they don't call me Kulsima because Bengalis like have pet names at home, so they call me Rima, that's my other name. So they, they came up to me, and they were like, are you Rima, are you Rima? And, and I was just like, yeah, and they're like, do you remember me? And I was just like, no, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was nice because you know you catch up and you reminisce and they're all crying and really sad but in some ways I'm like you haven't seen us in years or even called our house but you're here but fair enough like it's a a really complicated one isn't it when it comes to families and death and it's kind of convoluted it's convoluted and also the I don't know about you um but I experienced like a lot of questions and then wanting to understand why or how. And it's like, sometimes you just don't have the answers. And that's the last thing you want to do is try and like justify why your loved one died. It's just not really appropriate, I guess. (laughs) Not in that moment. And I 100% agree with you. And there is, it's a bit invasive. And in the South Asian community, I can't remember if you listened to Nick Watts episode, but he talked about that a little bit. That people just, yeah, and they're just like, is, who is that in the coffin? Or what happened? And, well, this isn't the time to be, you know, to be talking about that. We're trying to like, bury our mum. Like, you know, we're trying to have a funeral here. And it was the same with the phone calls. Like, people would be phoning you and fucking hell, the phone just wouldn't stop ringing. Yeah. And I found that very heavy with the phone calls. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be ungrateful here, but the phone just kept ringing. Yeah. And I I just remember my sister saying, if it's getting too much, just take it off the hook. Yeah, absolutely. It is overwhelming. And it's just like the same conversation over and over again. Like I describe it as just being in a scene or being in a play, like acting out the role of, oh, I answer the phone. We have this same conversation, then it goes back down and we just keep doing it. And it's really emotionally taxing. I got to the point where I was like, enough. I was like, I'm fucking tired of it. (laughs) So, yeah, I can relate. Exhausting, mate, I tell you. And, you know, the funeral was quick and, you know, Muslim funerals tend to be quite quick um, because it's within 24 or 48 hours. um, Because I guess in Islam, like, the sooner you bury, the better it is so that, you know, they can transition easily. Makes sense, actually. Yeah, because the body decomposes quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. And and it's to do with the fact that bodies decompose quickly and we don't believe in embalming and stuff. We just yeah. want to put the person's soul to rest quickly and that's what the belief yeah. is. But if anybody wants a detailed answer on that, you need to go speak to East London Mosque and they'll give you the, the answer of why we do that. Like, yeah. don't ask me because I'm not a scholar, so I don't know. Absolutely. Also, like, Google is your friend. You can learn a lot on the internet. Do you know what I mean? If there's anything that's come up this far that you're a bit like, oh, what does that mean? Or I'm not sure. Like, just do your research and you can learn an awful lot. And it's important that you do. I would, yeah, recommend doing that. 
Yeah, there's there's lots of information out there. Go for it, and it's it's good to get yourself in the know of how this all works because we might be born in Britain, but it doesn't mean we're all English. Like, you know, our parents pass on our cultures and their faiths and their traditions, and we live a dual reality. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah, and um, my mum didn't want to be buried to let Carney in the UK. She didn't want to be buried on UK soil. Okay, so did you end up taking the body over to Bangladesh? yeah so the decision was you know she talked about death and her own grief when her mum died and she said don't bury me on UK soil you know my my mum made a sacrifice to come to the UK for my dad right okay and I think my my mum really struggled with assimilating here and fitting in and she missed her family and you know she dealt with a lot of racism on her doorstep in the UK and I think she just really resented all of that and she didn't want to be buried on UK soil so she said bury me in Bangladesh so yeah the her body got transported literally 12 hours later it was in Bangladesh wow that's so fast yeah and we logistically moved fast because it has to happen fast yeah no I completely get that yeah yeah so she so she um I didn't go I I didn't go to Bangladesh so my sister her husband my dad and my brother went mm. I had to stay and look after my sister's kids because they were still in school at this point and schools don't let you take kids out so yeah I didn't go and she, you know I didn't see my mum's coughing going what, so that. was that yeah do you think that that was because you had a duty to look after your nephews like do you think if you had the choice to have been able to go, would you have gone or? I really wanted to go. And I remember saying, please let me go. Please let me go. Oh. But my sister was, you see, the thing is, my sister had a very emotional relationship with my mum, whereas I didn't. Okay. I'm not saying that I wasn't devastated, but I think it's an awareness of what people's needs are. Mm. And. Yeah. I love my mum, you know, my mum loved me, but we had a tough love relationship. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, I, don't, I only started to get to know her when I was 26 because they were starting to trust me more and we're having more open conversations. And, you know, I didn't have these friendships that I see my other friends where they go to Fortnum and Mason and have fucking champagne afternoon tea or go and have a spa day with their mum. I didn't have that oh, relationship yeah. with my mum. So you know we didn't we weren't traditional like that it was a very complex relationship and yeah and it often is it's never black and white and straightforward and like that is okay yeah and I'm only realizing that's okay now because before I was really ashamed of it because my friends would be like oh you know I did this with my mum and did that with my mum whereas I would kind of hide the relationship that I had with my mum a lot when I was growing up because I was still getting to know her it sounds a bit stupid, but we were still getting to know each other. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not stupid at all. Like, when we grow up, that's when we truly learn that our parents aren't just our parents. They're actual human beings. And they're so flawed. <laughs> yeah. Just like any other human being. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is... You see, my mum, when I was growing up, my dad was a very hands-on dad, right? He was always there at the school gate, whereas my mum wasn't. Right. And the reason for that is because my younger brother was born with autism and Down syndrome, so my mum's focus shifted. We were only four years apart. So she was not there when I was growing up a lot. 
Uh, it, okay. the, the focus shifted as in my sisters brought me up and my dad brought me up because okay. it's very difficult when you have a child that is born with a disability non-verbal your focus as a parent shifts so, and yeah. I don't blame her for that but it's something that I've reflected on now because I understand better yeah of course of so course. she wasn't at the school gate she wasn't that type of mum like it was very like you need to stand up look after yourself be strong and you know anyone says anything bad to you like you know <laughs> take it on the chin it was very tough love so like yeah. it's not that I didn't want to go to the burial I really did but I realized that there was only so many of us that could go and my sister in that moment really needed me yeah so I really wanted to go but I had to give in yeah, no, I completely understand that. And, you know, I would almost say it wasn't like you had much control over that either. And you just did what you had to do in that moment. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm sensing, like, obviously, you're quite angry about <laughs> the way that your workplace dealt with um, your grief. Um um, I'm interested to find out if there was any sort of compassionate leave. I know that that's something that's come up in a lot of the episodes. Um, it's it's not really a thing in the UK, is it? There's no, no real, there's no. No real rule. Um, I'd be interested to find out more about what happened with your workplace and how you coped if you still had to just show up at work as normal mm. great question so <laughs> you know <laughs> you know on the podcast I ran a lot about UK compassionate leave yeah the way I designed the questions there were certain things that I had to ask as mm. a standard right so UK compassionate leave there is, there is none unless recently there's Jack law right mm -hmm. if you're a parent with a child up to the age of 18 years old you get paid two weeks leave that can be spread over time and that was due to a lucy heard the campaigner because her her toddler had, had tragically died and yeah. she campaigned for that but what does that mean for the rest of us exactly mm. so there's still holes in these policies now for me back then in 2010 Nobody was talking about grief back then. There was no grief podcast. Yeah. Nobody was talking about cancelling and mental health, right? We didn't talk about mental health back then in the way that we do now. Yeah. I had very poor mental health after my mum had died. Yeah. And the way that they dealt with it, you know, they made it out as if, like, I was the problem. You know, mm. I'd asked if how much time I could get off and they were like, one day and wow. because that was the ACAS policy but they it's discretionary they didn't have to give me one day because all bereavement policies are discretionary your manager could give yeah. you as long as you wanted if they wanted to yeah but, but then, to them they didn't give a shit they just wanted me back at work and because it was a revenue based department it was all about revenue and I worked in you know a lot of it was about bringing in income and my job role was probably pivotal in that so it was they didn't give a shit like Carney like um, I I am very angry about it and it still traumatizes me yeah and I didn't know how to articulate or find the language to say that I had poor mental health and that I had grief because I didn't even know what grief was back then of course yeah 
I didn't know any of those things like I do now. No one said to me, go see a counsellor. No one said, go call the cruise helpline. Yeah, that just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing back then. Mm-hmm. And I just, I didn't even know what I was feeling. I think what I thought was that I had bipolar. And my mate at work was like, mate, you ain't got bipolar. I don't know what it is, but you ain't got bipolar. Yeah. So I, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me and I thought it was all me but they were just like no you have to be back at work and they made me work from home during the Christmas holidays yeah because they didn't really have Christmas leave it was all discretionary and I remember my manager saying I know you've got more important things on your mind but you need to send this contract to this local authority it's really really important that we get the revenue from them can you fucking believe that? I was just reading that email and I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah, I have yeah. more important things on my mind. My mum just died. Exactly. This has really got to change. I mean, even now, like, you're very fortunate if your workplace is supportive, if you lose someone and you're grieving and they, they say, oh, yeah, we'll give you the time off. I think it really depends on which company you work for, how much the company focuses on mental health and grief and I guess it's from a financial standpoint as well Mm. and because some companies will say oh you take the time off but it'll be as like statutory sick pay Mm. which means of course you're not getting your standard wages you're getting a really small amount of money but Mm. you're signed off as being sick yourself which is Mm. interesting Mm. um so and and so how I exactly and how I dealt with that was I was like oh my god I can't cope with this because this office is really insensitive they're making me work and even the night that my mum had died they were trying it was the Christmas party they were trying to get me to come to the Christmas party Mm. and I just remember having a sinking feeling and thinking to myself if she dies tonight and you're at this Christmas party you're never going to forgive yourself why are they trying to force you to come to the Christmas party and I guess maybe they just wanted me to take my mind off things but they they didn't really understand what I was going through and also that office was I'm just gonna go out and say it they were really racist and very Islamophobic and back then diversity was a dirty word so they like they could just get away with saying whatever they wanted and I was quite about these issues back then and maybe I wasn't the most popular person in the office because I would speak up about microaggressions and things like that so they were just like okay so your mum died whatever you got one day they sent me a box of chocolates with a note that said to cheer you up to make you smile I can't believe that (laughs) but my older sister was there at that point and she was like what the fuck like you're not gonna cheer up are you what's wrong with them (laughs) and a box of chocolates like I'm sorry no yeah no that that's really really awful I'm so sorry that you had to go through that it sounds it's very lonely I feel like yeah yeah absolutely any of our listeners if going forward you ever experience grief just make sure you advocate for yourself and you say what you need and be like very transparent like I need two months away from work yeah Um, Yeah. you know and it might be longer and they just will have to deal with that and you know if they are not compassionate and they don't handle it well just fight for yourself even more to be like you know I we can always um use socials (laughs) use the press companies don't like to be put on blast and 
Mm. I think there's a lot more of that coming up where people are just kind of going, do you know what? Things are dealt with badly. People need to know. Mm. Um, so there's always that as well, I guess. Yeah. It does really come at you fast in that sense. And yeah, it's, it's a lot to deal with. Mm. Um, so I'm interested to find out a little bit more um, about uh, your experience of maybe if you had any therapy um, over the years to deal with your grief or what your process has kind of been to heal as much as you can from from the grief that you've suffered? Mm. Um, so after my mum's death, I, I knew a little bit about counselling because a good friend of mine at university, he said in my final year of my dissertation when I was stressed, go and see the university counsellor, and I did, and I had a good experience. But prior to that, I didn't know what counselling was, but I'm very thankful to him for that. Um, and then I just thought after my mum's death, it took me back to that time at uni where I was like, hmm, maybe I should see a counsellor because I'd lost all my friendship groups at that point, and oh, yeah. which we'll talk about after this. Yeah. But um, I was like, let me see a counsellor. And I went to my GP and he gave me a counsellor on the NHS where they give you like 12 sessions or whatever. Mm. But she was like this Mediterranean counsellor, mate. Like, okay, she was Italian and I guess we were lost in translation. She couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand her. And she just nodded a lot. And I think it was really distracting because she'd just be hammering away at her computer while she was listening to me talk about my grief and my life. And she was nice, but I couldn't connect with her. And then after two sessions, I gave up. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. If it's not working for you, it's not working. And I think, you know, we need to have more ownership over being in these rooms with counsellors. If it's not the right fit and your gut is telling you this this feels uncomfortable, listen to that and just be like, nah, I'm not going to subject myself to something that is going to be so difficult. Yeah, it was literally that. You just hit the nail on the head. It was, yeah. I just remember laying in bed, getting a text message saying, you've missed your appointment, you could, you've got this many days to respond or whatever. And I just thought, oh, fuck it, I can't deal with this because she's just not right for me. And I feel yeah. like I'm explaining myself, repeating my words. Yeah. Uh, how is she a psychotherapist or a psychologist on the NHS? Like, I couldn't get my head around that. I was like, oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, so I gave up. And at that point, obviously, I didn't know too much about the therapy world like I do now. So I didn't, I didn't get any therapy, mate. I just spent um, seven years healing myself. <laughs> wow. Wow. Which, well, I think props to you. I think that's amazing that you've really done the work yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I did my best. Good, good. And, yeah, you, so you mentioned something about um, your loss of friendships. Now, obviously, that's something we've spoken about before on my episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, what happened there? Because obviously you were this um, party girl with loads of friends, really extroverted out there. You know, with this happening, with you suffering from grief, how how did things change? I'm assuming that they did. Yeah, they did massively so. And yeah, you're right. Um, you know, my story is very much of identity loss. You know, 
I it's hard to have that additional loss where you lose all your support networks yeah so it takes me back to a conversation on New Year's Eve so that's December 2010 when my mum died my best friend came and her mum came and they dropped off a card and you know we talked and you know I think that was two days after my mum's funeral and because she was living in Brighton at the time I was like what are you doing on New Year's Eve it would be really great if we did something together and you know you could be here with me and she's like oh my flatmate her boyfriend cheated on her so like and I'm so devastated for her she's going through the worst thing of her life the absolute worst thing can you believe that her boyfriend cheated on her how could he do that she's such an amazing person that it's the worst pain you could ever go through (laughs) so mate this is the start of insensitive conversations and I just looked at her and I was like and you know in that moment I really needed her like I can't even tell you I really just needed because I had my sisters in that but you know it can be really overwhelming with family it can yeah you need your friends and I was still living in London with my parents and although she was in Brighton because her mum lives down the road from me Mm. like she'd come home you know for the holidays and I was like yeah I've got my best friend who I never see right because she lives in another city and she just fucking sighed like she just did not acknowledge anything Wow! Like, like she just gave me this card yeah I'm really sorry and you know I think it was just amusement for her or something I, or I don't know, maybe she didn't know what to say or what, but sh- she was someone that was, you know, I guess during that time, you're really into boys, right? You want a boyfriend when you're in your 20s, maybe for some people that are in their 20s. And, you know, it's all about relationships. And, you know, if a guy's cheating on you or whatever, it's like the worst thing in the world. And a lot of my friends weren't experiencing what I had gone through. I bet, Yeah. So maybe they just didn't know what to say. But I found it really insensitive. And I think for me, that moment really hurt. So she went back to Brighton on New Year's Eve. Mm. And I think friendships are really hard to navigate in grief when something like this happens. Because I also recall when the local Bangladeshi restaurants, they donated so much food. So, you know, in, in South Asian communities, as soon as they hear about a death right, everyone just comes over, starts cooking. I'm not talking about a takeaway I'm talking about a massive pot right of food a whole buffet yeah yeah and you know they were really lovely and really supportive and I remember my sister saying look we're not going to get through this all through this food even if we refrigerate it and your friends are texting you why don't you invite them around the next day so I invited a lot of my friends around yeah and they came around and we talked and one of my friends where her mum had died of cancer a few years before she was very keen on knowing how my mum died like the last few moments right and so we're sitting there in the living room and she's like are you okay to talk about it and I was just like yeah sure um so you know I was dishing up their food and they were eating and I was like well you know mom just sort of fell asleep there was no pain she didn't struggle for breath she just fell asleep like yeah she just her breath quietened down and she just went away um and my friend just looked visibly upset about that and when I say upset because I know that when her mum died it was the last moments were the opposite of what my mum's were ah okay 
and that was maybe triggering or upsetting and she really just needed to know what the last moments were but really it's an insensitive moment this isn't some comparison about who had a good death and who didn't like the person bloody died and they had cancer and they struggled for months and months and months and like my mum didn't even get treatment right yeah like she her life wasn't extended and this isn't a competition there's no hierarchy but it it really heightened my awareness of why she asked that question you're not here to care about me and my grief you just want to know that my mum struggled in her last moments but I'm sorry to tell you she didn't so it just that really pissed me off and I don't know what the listeners think of that or what their view on that is it would be interesting to hear but I found that to be very insensitive I think that that is so insensitive. I think that's such bad practice. And I think, you know, people just need to get better at dealing with just listening. You don't have to make comments and you don't have to ask insensitive questions. Just listen and be there and show up. It's like when when my dad died and people are like, oh, so how did he die? I'm like, (laughs) yeah what I just think Mm. that's not really like the detail that you need to know why is that the first question and why is that the first question it's awful it's really 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 bad you don't need to know the why you just need to know that it happened and I think for me personally I think we might have touched on it in my episode but I'm just going to say it again it took me so long to find out why my dad died For weeks, we were like, we don't know. The Mm. death certificate hadn't come through. We didn't actually have a reason. So I had all these people asking me, and I'm I'm like, well, I actually don't know. And they're sort of going, well, this is weird. How would you not know? It must have been something. Was there an underlying thing? And I'm like, I literally just don't want to have this conversation. Yeah, if I can give anyone any advice around (laughs) grief, just don't ask how. If the person offers up that information then listen but absolutely it's not really the thing that you should be asking it's such there's a lot of things that are bad practice around grief but I think that is one of the really at the top prominent ones yeah at the top (laughs) yeah 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 it's a joke it's an absolute joke just couldn't understand how she just disappeared after that moment Wow. I, I got maybe one phone call from her after that, didn't hear from her again. And maybe it's because she was in a serious relationship or it's too triggering. I don't really know. I never saw her again, never heard from her again. They took their bloody biryani and fucked off that day. So, you know, I've yeah. never really saw or heard from them again in, in that moment. And uh, and it and that was, you know, I had different friendship circles. So the other one was, I recall being in North London at a barbecue in the summer in 2011. Now, at this point, none of these lot have seen me in the party scene for a while. Mm. Because I used to organise parties on Facebook and stuff, and nights out, and birthdays, and whatever, right? And I go to this barbecue that my friend invites me to. I go there with my best friend, and... They're like, oh, we haven't seen you in a while. What's been going on? I was like, oh, you probably heard my mum died. And, you know, it was really hard. And at that point, you're still processing, right? Because it's not even been a year. And I start crying, like, in the middle of this barbecue in front of everyone. Okay. And they're just, like, really awkward around me. Because I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I'm trying to go out and be me again and be out with everyone and start, you know... (laughs) being fun call seema that everyone needs to know 
But yeah. at that point, I realised that I wasn't fun to them anymore. They all just couldn't wait, wait to get away from me. I was like this miserable person that nobody mm. wanted to be around. And also a lot of people commented that I'd become very angry. And that was very, like, alienating. And right. they just didn't want me around them. Because when you're going to a party, you go there to have fun, right? Yeah, of course. Not talk about death. Mm. And then there's me opening up about death to them. And I thought they'd understand because, you know, we partied together, we socialised together and got yeah. up to all sorts. But it's no, mate, no. All of a sudden, that's bad vibes, yeah. It was bad vibes. It was like, you're not positive. You're not positive vibes. You're so miserable. And they just couldn't stand to be around me because I was just crying all the bloody time. Wow. But I couldn't help it. Like... Yeah, absolutely not. It's to be expected. And I think, you know, it's one of them ones until they experience like grief themselves, they will just never understand. Um, But when that happens to them, they'll then suddenly be like, oh, wow. Okay. So all those years ago, where I was a complete dick around your grief. Yeah, they're all listening to this podcast now, mate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, the, penny, the penny will drop when they realise like how difficult it it is, or how dif- how difficult it has been. Um, yeah, and I would just say you're better off without those people. Yeah, because we talked about that in your episode, didn't we? That as you quoted, I'm just going to quote you: "There's nothing like a death to know who your real friends are." Yeah. I will always stand by that um you know I'm so grateful to the people that I have in my life now because they were the ones that were there for me back in October 2016 and have consistently still been there for me but there's an awful lot of people that I lost along the way and do you know what I'm actually fine with that I've come to really like just accept that um and actually not not really take it personal because it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, it's not in your control at, at the end of the day. But, you know, yeah. the thing about that is it takes a while to, to arrive to that answer. Um, um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I felt for me it took ages to get to that answer. And when you lose your whole social life, right, mm. like, I can't tell you how much I relied on my social life at that point. Yeah. And when people stop liking you when you were so liked before... Yeah, it's a hard, hard pill to swallow, I bet. In your 20s, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, I just, and for me, I found that hard. I became lonely, and then my sister packed her suitcases, went back in February to her, back to her house, and it was just me and my dad, and, you know, I can honestly say the only person that was my friend was my dad. Yeah. Mm. And that's a strange thing, because when you're 26 and your best friend is your dad, um, you know when your social life is your dad it's really hard and I just I went into a really dark place I was like all you got to do is make sure you wake up go to work come home if you can just do that for the next few years and that's all I did for six seven years I had no friendships I literally went to work came back home and yeah my dad was my friend wow that sounds really like I can't believe that. That's very excellent. So there just wasn't one, not even one person. So my my 
best, best friend who I went to school with that I've known since I was 11. She was living in Manchester at the time because that's where she went to uni. Now, she had very poor mental health and depression. And she was there at the end of a text, but I couldn't lean on her too much. I see, because she had, like, her own mental health stuff going on. Very poor. Yeah, very, very poor. Yeah. there was only so much I could do for like she could do for me and I could do for her and she was there at the end of the text but I never saw her and back then you know when you're on low salaries it's hard to book a ticket to come home and stuff like that Um, and she was there at the end of the text but I was aware she had other things going on but Mm -hmm. she's the only one that I've held on to okay yeah day everyone else literally they all just disappeared or um, I might get an occasional happy birthday text from them, but they'll never ask me what's going on in my life. So yeah. mm. um, all I can say for me, was I really wanted to be, you know, party girl called Seema again. <laughs> but, yeah. And I cried for that. The nights that I cried to just get my old life back, like, mum, why I did bet. you cry? why like why did this have to happen and then the silence was deafening in my house and it was just me and my dad (sighs) and that was a massive adjustment yeah and I think oh it definitely is that thing you do grief the life that you had before you grieved it 100% that's the thing even me yeah because I was so carefree and oblivious to the world and just so like living my best life I was also partying and having fun and, and yeah, the life of the party, socialising a lot. And then I realised, oh, so those friends, they're only party friends. That's they it. only went before the party to yeah. come out and have fun. And when I wasn't that, that's how I lost them. So that's I can it. really resonate with everything that you've shared and what you've said. Um, fairly similar <laughs> to what I went yeah. through. Yeah, um, very much so. Mm. I, I feel like that's where we, you know we'd really connected on the recording of your episode because we talked a lot about that and I think we need to be more open and keep having these conversations and talking about how we can be better as friends for anyone that's yeah. listening that's trying to help a grieving friend I'm completely with you I was exactly the same I thought this I thought the loneliness was gonna sort of kill me I that's thought it. this this is too much on top of the grief of what you've already lost it's like all these people it's like the rejection of of them going ah this is too much I don't actually want to deal with you and what you're going through and you know we're not asking for therapy through our friends but it's just the showing up and just being like I'm here here's some food um have you do you need to drink more water today have you showered like just the general like checking in and I think it's taught me to now be a better friend just in general but I know if any of my friends lost somebody I feel like I'd know exactly what they'd need because I'd just go oh well what what did I feel like I didn't have do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it does teach you a lot of lessons and I think I hate to say it, but my mum's death made me a better person. Yeah. Because people would argue, well, you were just a 20-something, right? But 
I actually think I'm so much better right now. I might be more introverted. I like my space. I need my reflection time. I don't really hang out in groups. I have social anxiety. I can't do crowded places and stuff. Like, it scares the shit out of me. And, you know, maybe I need to get some help for that. But I am someone that just likes to spend a lot of time alone. Mm. Um, and, you know, that that's just who I've become. And I've had to learn to accept that those old friends, the people that you associated with, you know, it taught you a lesson about what's real and what isn't. Oh, absolutely. So, so many lessons. So I think uh, you mentioned to me that um, throughout your healing, you did that yourself. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about the things that you did to get to the place that you're in now today? So I think you may have mentioned blogging. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I was very angry <laughs> at healthcare professionals. I, mm. the National Health Service. You know, our National Health Service is free, great, um, but it's not perfect. It's plagued with error and negligence and racism. It's institutionally yeah. racist, right? Mm. Um, what I had to do was to get through my anger, which was mostly placed at healthcare professionals, will start blogging. So I set up, this, you know, I used to love writing. That's why I worked in publishing, because I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Um, and it's an amazing way that your life journey can take you. So what I did was I started blogging my anger about health professionals and everything that we went through and the, the countless visits and putting my words down on, you know, writing, writing them really helped me process how I was feeling yeah because there was nowhere no one there to listen really and my sisters were there but they were dealing with their own grief so like I just blogged mostly about my anger towards the GP yeah. and I think I had a turning point because two years after my mum's death I had a chest infection for about a week and a half and I went to and I'm going to digress a little bit here but um yeah. I went to see the family GP and he basically was like he didn't say anything. He listened to me. And then he was like, oh, here you go. Here's your prescription. Take that to the chemist. And I look down at it and it's coedine, which is a painkiller. Mm. And I, I started to look around his office at this point because now I'm very frustrated. Why have you given me painkillers? Mm. I can buy painkillers from the counter. Yeah. So I look around his office and I can see his happy, smiley frame pictures of him and his family. And it's the same family GP, right, that treated my mum. And I just lost my shit, mate. We ended up having a massive, like, fight in his office. Yeah. You can get arrested for that shit. I don't know what happened, but a light just switched inside my head. And this argument led onto the street because his office was in a porter cabin. So yeah. it ended up in, like, a high street. And, like, he's just following me out. And I'm just swearing at him and saying he's a shit doctor. I don't want fucking painkillers. You know, like, if you, you know, fine, you don't want to give me antibiotics or just tell me to go get something from the counter. But why are you giving me coadine? Doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. Like, I'm not in pain here. Um, and I just basically slagged him off in the middle of the street and called him a shit doctor and said he was not fit for purpose. Right. Yeah. <laughs> at that point and you can get arrested to these things so just want to say to the listeners I'm going to come to you that there are better ways to deal with these things I didn't deal with that in the way that I should have yeah I went but to the reception at the end of the day I just also want to say like you are only human and like you were probably just at 
breaking point and like these things do happen I'm not like condoning it and saying people should go out there and do the same thing but also you know we learn from these things oh yeah massively learn happen yeah massively and you know he followed me to the reception I was like I want to move to the clinic next door he goes I don't want to treat you or your family anymore well me and my family is just me and my dad so I was like that's fine not sure I'm going to deliver that news to my dad (laughs) I moved to the next clinic but it helped me to blog that's kind of how I healed myself to write about those incidents and just as you have just said you'll need to know that if you have a complaint or a gripe or feedback don't have a slanging match on the street with the health professional because that shit can get you arrested do I regret it like you said I am only human I don't regret it I released anger that day I unleashed something that I had internalized and the GP got to hear he got to really hear about himself that day so changing clinics and blogging about my anger it really really helped me process and move on away from that because it's traumatic to go back and see the same GP that didn't do his job properly and he did get into trouble for it yeah good rightly so Mm. and that's why I want to say to the listeners BAMES don't usually give feedback and they don't complain but you need to start doing that because the reason they don't have data on us is because we don't do these things so if you want to make a complaint okay don't have a fight with them in the street okay I did that whatever we move on if you've got a complaint there is a general practice manager that manages all of those medics you email them and you write your letter of complaint they they are paid to do that job yeah you write to them and you give them the complaint and the feedback and that's how they improve the services and it's the same in a hospital as well um but I don't regret my actions but I'm not telling you to go and do that just to put that out there (laughs) so I blogged I blogged and I wrote and I I traveled a lot I love traveling I went to so many countries in those five six seven years oh wow really by myself obviously because I had Billy no mates over here (laughs) (laughs) I had no bloody friends so yeah I went to Brazil went to Tanzania I went to Cuba you know be here all night if I listed the countries because when you don't go to the clubs anymore and you're not drinking or whatever you save your money right yeah of course yeah and it's just me and my dad just us trying to get by was the only thing that I had and I had to give myself something nice yeah absolutely and you know I mentioned on my episode like I went traveling after my dad passed away in September 2017 and it was the best thing I ever did and I healed so much from it and I'm a real advocate of like go out there solo travel be at one with yourself with no one else where you can just truly do you and be you because I think you know often when we're around family I don't know if this was the case for you but it's like you've kind of got got to hold it together and be like quite performative um I didn't deal with anything that I went through until I went traveling and then I was like oh finally I can just process all of this Mm. so yeah absolutely the same Mm. yeah Mm. And I and I th- think that it empowers you because when you solo travel, your awareness is heightened, your su- you know your survival skills. You really have to tap into who you are when you're on your own. Definitely. Uh, and it and built my lone. I have to say, it 
beat my loneliness. Great. Well, I'm sure you met lots of incredible people as well. I did. I made new friends. (laughs) Which is is amazing. It's so exciting. Like, there was a world of, like, all different possibilities for you. And I think that that's great. Um, I just want to touch on something you said about survival. Obviously, you'd survived grieving your mum. And it's like... I don't know about you, but I had a sense of like, I can do anything now. That's it. That's the it. Worst thing, the worst thing that could happen has, has happened. And I've got past that. So I'm pretty sure I can backpack around Southeast Asia and handle that and deal with that. 100%. Exactly. It's almost like billions that's built up to be like, I can do whatever. That's exactly it. Because even now being introverted or whatever, like in my own space, if I want to board a flight to the other side of the world I'm gonna have no fear I have no fear when it comes to stuff like that I don't question it so it's exactly as you just said it was like I'm so empowered I can do bloody anything because I've survived this and I've survived seven years without any friendships there we go I think it's amazing I think that's so so good yeah I really enjoyed it and I I put it out there to you all travel if you haven't you know go for it solo traveling saved my life honestly it really really did and I I guess you could say I closed the door and stopped being a bit angry and I ended up in Brazil which is the trip I was meant to do the year that my mum had died which got cancelled because obviously she was dying so I can't go to Brazil while she's dying yeah so it's like I did a full circle in those in in on the seventh year I went to Brazil and I eventually made that trip I think that's incredible. That's so good. And it's almost like you honoured your mum by doing that as well and yourself. Yeah, I did. Honestly, I did. And that trip was so awesome. It was brilliant. And, you know, um, it was, I think, a turning point in my life. I would like to hear a little bit about um, any sort of, like, fond memories that you've had that you can recall with your mum Um things that you look back on that sort of make you smile um when you remember her yeah so um smallest of thing or if nothing comes to you then no I mean I have thought about it because I've been reflecting Mm. so look I we grew up in a very white area okay we're the only Asian and only ethnic family where we lived in those days back then and my earliest memory is my mum fighting racists off from her doorstep it's not exactly a happy memory but it reminds me of who my mum was right yeah and you know people would throw stones and eggs and bricks at our door and call us packies and I just remember my mum caught those racists one day because she was sweeping downstairs with her broom and she opened the door and she raised her kitchen broom at this racist family that lived over the road that just loved to terrorize us but unfortunately she got carted off to the police station for questioning oh yeah because they were like you know this woman was beating us with a broom but what she was doing was fighting off racists from her doorstep yeah so that's my earliest memory opening the door to the police where they want to interview my mum and take her to the station which is really hard when you've got low grasp of english and you're an immigrant woman in this country right trying to fight people you know fight racists off your door 
So that's my earliest memory. And, you know, she went through that interview and my dad translated and they let her go and they realised that it wasn't us and it was this racist family. But that's quite traumatic in itself. My mum had mental strength. She had a lot of mental strength. And I look back and I just think she was amazing. I just think that she put up with so much fucking nonsense on her doorstep. But, um, that I just look back at that moment and I think, wow, what would that have been like? Because I don't know what it's like to be carted off to the police station. I've never been asked to go to the police station, especially when you're defending yourself and your family and your home. Yeah, of course. Wow. Your mum sounds like a badass. I'm here for it. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess the final one is the jewellery box. So as I said said earlier, my mum never was at the school gate. She was never at the school gate for me, but one day she was. Um, she turned up and I was really surprised yeah. and uh, she said we're going to do a little detour now right. so back then the people would start sell things on their doorsteps car beat sales were a big thing there were loads of charity shops where I lived my mum used to love dragging me around the charity shops and I hated that shit I was like why can't we go to Marks and Spencer's why can't we just go to a normal shop why have we got to go to a charity shop mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember that these ladies were selling stuff on their doorstep and there was this jewelry box that this lady was selling and it was like a velvet black jewelry box with tassels really nice something you wouldn't see on the high street it was probably a family heirloom I don't know but she was selling it for 50 pence and my mum was you know my mum was someone that didn't have much money yeah and I think it was important for her as an immigrant woman to be able to say that she could buy something or buy something for her child even though it wasn't brand new or whatever yeah of course hence the charity shop yeah so like um and they're like a thing now they're popular now but they weren't back then I guess um she brought this charity this uh jewelry box rather and I just thought she was buying the jewelry box for herself and she got it for 20 pence in the end she haggled it and then my as we walked away my mum kind of turned to me and she said I'll put this in your school bag it's yours aww and for a seven or eight year old, it's a bit too much, this jewellery box, because it was very nice. You know, yeah. it was a very nice jewellery box. And I didn't really have jewellery at that age. But it, I, and I couldn't understand why she brought that for me at the time. I was surprised when she turned to give me the box. But now when I look back on it, I realise, you know, maybe that was just a moment where my mum could say I could buy something for my child. A child that's always wishing that she could go to McDonald's and you know that could go to Marks and Spencer's or Tammy Girl or whatever yeah of course of course but they could never do that for me and I used to cry about that a lot as a child because I was the only child that just looked really poor in my primary school years I can relate I can totally relate (laughs) I was always whinging that I couldn't have anything new all my clothes were hand-me-downs I'd never want yeah and it's and that's you know as a child when your friends have got all of that and you haven't it's quite traumatizing but I only learn as I get older that you know that moment really sticks in my mind Mm. I I think she just did the best that she could absolutely and that's all our parents ever tried to do yeah and I I have more (laughs) compassion and empathy and I understand that more now because they went through something that perhaps yeah. we possibly couldn't understand in that time. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I still have I still have that jewelry box to this day and it's still intact. <laughs> Lovely. I love that. That's so beautiful. Yeah, 
yeah i think this now brings us to the message and the gratefulness challenge yeah so um what what is your message what's your main takeaway from today what is it that you want to say to the listeners in regards to everything we've spoken about so I have a message about the NHS and inequality and racism and poor patient experience. I just want to say that we need to advocate for our loved ones because a medic's job is a job at the end of the day. BAME, do not feedback or complain. That is why BAME data is low and it takes a long time. You need to feedback and you need to complain when something has gone wrong, right? Yeah. Otherwise, nothing's going to change within the National Health Service. Yes, it's free. It's something that we pay for. And yes, I'm grateful for it. But it is plagued with error, negligence and racism. Don't think that it is not. Mm. It doesn't just need a reform. It needs a revolution. As you can all see, at the moment, there is a massive revolution going on with regards to BLM, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And I would like to, you know, and now everyone's questioning their sector and their industry, whether it's psychotherapy, counselling, acting, publishing. People are now talking out about racism. You know, it's becoming a, now a wider topic, right? Mm. We need to do that with the National Health Service. I'm not saying it's a terrible place, but you need to wake up and understand that the National Health Service, it's not perfect and it doesn't just need a reform. It needs a revolution, Definitely, yeah, I completely agree. Be present, speak up. Mm. Do you have anything that you want to say, like a message? Uh, yeah, I just want to add off the back of that, um, it's something we touched on earlier, to just advocate as well for yourself. So, like, really, if the service is not good enough, obviously, yeah, do the complaints, as you've just mentioned, but also, like, don't be afraid to question the authorities mm, mm. Um, that you deal with. So be like, oh, so why are you prescribing me this? What will this do? What are the side effects? Um, ask questions, because I feel like there's also a culture of like, oh, well, we'll just shut up and, and deal with w whatever we're given and not question it. Yeah. Um, comes from like a generational thing of just keeping your head down and like getting on with it but like I feel like we can all uh kind of change the way that things are if we're just like asking questions and challenging things so yeah just off the back of that I think that's yeah. really important yeah you have to advocate for yourself because medics yeah. only speak one language and it's called medical terminology we didn't go to medical school yeah it's so true so if you are confused just be like I don't understand what does that mean can you explain it um so that I can understand what you're trying to say because when they use all this terminology we are it just goes in one ear and out the other of course we're not expected to understand and then that's when we end up that's where things go wrong and that's it that's it and I'm not gonna lie I do that myself when I when I'm not doing good I ham it up to the extreme so that I'll be taken seriously, regardless of whether it's that bad or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you have to. But you because have to. Because... Have to. Yeah. Mm. I think we're at the end now. So I guess we'll be moving on to the gratefulness challenge. Um, so this is uh, the part of the episode where we both share what we're grateful for 
Um, it can be anything from a small thing to something really big. Mm. Um, would you like to go first or shall I? You go because I've been speaking a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, I am grateful for having the opportunity to listen to your story um I'm really grateful that you took the time to go into so as much detail as you did um so we can really understand um who you are as Kulsuma Ali um and yeah I'm just grateful that you really took the time to to share um and I feel yeah quite honored that I was able to facilitate that today um so yeah Thank you. That's really beautiful. And I, I'm so happy that it was you that facilitated the penultimate episode. It made sense, I think. Um, and it's really great when a guest can come back and do that. So thank you yeah. for listening to me ramble on. No, <laughs> I really appreciate welcome. it. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to end, uh, my gratefulness is that I am... I'm grateful for a bereavement room because you know what? It was something that I needed 10 years ago that I couldn't get and I now have it and I feel less lonely and I hope that this space has given all of the guests and all of the listeners something, right? Mm. Some kind of comfort. And, you know, my dad died early on in January and I'm not going to tell that story yet because I don't know how he died. But I honestly, I look back at when I started this podcast and interviewed all of you guys. Mm. Was it the universe saying, Colsima, your dad's going to die. You're doing this podcast. You don't know he's going to die, but the podcast is going to hold you together. Yeah. Wow. And I honestly think if it wasn't for this podcast, I don't know what I would have done. Imagine if I didn't know any of you lot and this podcast oh, no. didn't happen. Where would I be? Yeah, that is crazy how it's all sort of come together. I think that's what just makes it so important is that we're all able to share our stories and we can all connect and be there for each other. Yeah, and so many of us are, you know, I think people have made new friends, new connections or whatever that may be for them and got opportunities through it. And I I, I just love this space and I'll try to keep carrying on. You know, there's going to be a season two in September Right. And I and I'm looking forward to that. We've already got a long lineup and I'm grateful for everyone that's come forward and given feedback and trusted me with their story because the seat that I've sat in is very privileged. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that just brings me to say acceptance, you know. It took a long time to accept where I am now in comparison mm-hmm. to before when I was in my twenties. I think when yeah. if you can find acceptance in your heart that can be very liberating yeah definitely I think that's amazing that's it yeah and all you white grief podcasters I hope the recent events and BR has taught you that maybe you need to diversify a little bit and you need to ask yourself don't ask me because you've all been filling up my DMs about how you can diversify your audience and your guest list you Mm -hmm. think about why you have so you have attracted so many communities that are not black or Asian or minority other. You need to ask yourself the question that don't ask me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I just want to, yeah, second that. <laughs> do not come to me <laughs> because I'm not here to do the work for you. It is not my job. Work it out yourselves. Put the work in and just do better. That was former guest, Lakhani Cherva. She returned to the show to host today's episode. We were talking about my mum who died of cancer in December 2010, almost 10 years ago. Shout outs to Lakhani, I really appreciate you for coming through. I'd also like to thank all of my former guests who shared personal accounts of their life with me. BR wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for you thank you so much and to all of our listeners that have tuned in today that stayed to the end of the episode i did ramble on a bit and to everyone that took time to write letters and dms to me i really appreciate it thank you but it's not over there is one more episode to go and i'll be sharing that with you soon if you want to follow us on social media you can find us on twitter at bereavement room or you can find us on Instagram. It's at Bereavement Room. As always, I'm still your guest, Kosima Ali. Thanks for listening.